Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. It does indeed take the complete Bible to make a complete Christian. Also, we understand that there is nothing lacking at all in the Word of God. All issues of life that pertain to the inner man, that pertain to the inner woman, are contained therein. And being the kind of church we are, where we go through verse by verse, passage by passage, we primarily deal with these issues, at least from the pulpit, when they come up in the text. And so we find ourselves here at the end of Ephesians chapter 5 and now at the beginning of chapter 6 where God is zeroing in on relationships, on the relationship between wives and husbands at the end of chapter 5 and between children and parents at the beginning of chapter 6. We understand that as parents, if you're a father, if you're a mother here, you have been entrusted with a little bundle or little bundles of tremendous capacity for evil or good. Now, it's interesting, the world, many in the world, and at times perhaps even uh, Christians that don't fully understand what they have at their disposal might muse or somehow think that, well, I wish my child came with an instruction manual. We should understand, you should understand, that your child did come with an instruction manual. It's called the Bible. God tells you everything you need at the high level for the most important fundamental role and responsibility you have to be a good steward of the most wonderful gift given to you by God. Now, What is the key to raising children? There are many resources. There are many even good Christian parenting books. But, beloved, the key to biblical parenting is not a parenting book, even if it's a good parenting book. The fundamental key to biblical parenting is theology that God reveals in the pages of Scripture. And we we understand that involved, loving parents are the biggest barrier in terms of providing for the children or protecting, I should say, biggest barrier in protection of the children against the forces that would cause harm to your child, whether they be ideologies against the teaching of Scripture or others as well. This is why so many tyrants through history and even many institutions today, even escalating in a rapid-fire manner, are seeking to drive a wedge between the parent and the child because at the very beginning, when God created man in his own image, male and female, he established a marriage as the first fundamental sacred institution at the Garden of Eden, and that even parents as well, both of which, the marriage is basically a dramatization of the wonderful covenant-keeping love relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, and in the same way, the relationship between a godly parent and a child, or as verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 6 would zero in here of a biblical godly father and his child is a picture is and should be a dramatization of God the father's love and care and shepherding of his children of you and of me as well beloved listen as I read verses 1 through 4 of Ephesians chapter 6 our passage our verse this morning is verse 4 but we'll read this entire section of exhortation instruction encouragement that God gives through the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, to this church in Gilbert, in his word. Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Children, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of God that has been read in your hearing, beloved. Please attend to it from your heart as such. Now, as we read this passage, we see back in verse 1 that children are instructed, children are commanded to obey your parents. We see Paul moving to quote even the fifth commandment. 
and honor your fathers and mother. So we know that both parents, mother and father, father and mother, are included in this. But in verse 4, we see the Apostle Paul narrow and zero in and directly address the fathers. And the reason behind this is, is that the fathers, you fathers have the lead responsibility in bringing up your children and raising your children and rearing your children and disciplining and instructing your children in the Lord. Mothers, to be sure, are included, but this is addressed directly to the fathers. Now, what we'll do here this morning when we look at this, uh, last week, if you're here, you'll remember that we kind of focused last week as we looked at verse 4 on understanding what Paul is teaching here. This morning, we're going to focus a little bit more on applying what Paul is teaching. Last week was more around what it is you fathers are to do, and this morning is more along the lines of why you are to do it. It'll be the same general outline with one difference. Last week, we talked about five markers of biblical fatherhood. Uh, that's more in terms of what you are to be about as fathers. This morning, we'll have the same different outline, same words in the outline, but it's five blessings of biblical fatherhood, more in terms of why you do what you do and the impact, the blessing, the gift it can be to your children as you would seek to do these things by God's grace and mercy for his glory, for the encouragement of your wife and for the blessing of your children and for the blessing of others that would come from them. One of my common prayers for my children is that wherever it's in your ministry, in the workplace, at school, or in the church, that you would be blessed and that you would be a blessing to others as well. And beloved, we understand, we should understand, you men should understand, you don't do this primarily to make more obedient children. You don't do this primarily to make your children a better and more respectable citizen with a better reputation in the world. No, the primary motivation you have is you do these things and what comes from the blessing so that your son, so that your daughter will escape the wrath of God. So that your son, so that your daughter will enjoy the presence of God forever in heaven with them. Let's look, beloved, at the first blessing of biblical fatherhood. And basically, the, same, the five markers are the same as the five blessings. Restraint, nourishment, discipline, instruction, and motivation. The first blessing of biblical fatherhood is restraint. And you see there in verse 4 that Paul doesn't begin with a charge of authority. He begins with a charge of restraint. He doesn't begin with the do's. He begins with a don't. And he says, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't provoke your children to an avoidable, a legitimately avoidable anger. Uh, understand, he's not saying here don't, to fathers, don't ever do anything that will ever make your child angry. Because one of the things we understand, and if you're a parent of a child at any age, you'll understand one of the first things that will be a surefire trigger for anger is when even a young child hears the word no for the first time. So Paul, again, is not saying don't ever do anything that will ever make your child anger. Rather, do not live your life. Do not shepherd your child. Do not bring your child up in a fashion that will provoke them to unrighteous anger. And we can ask the question, what will provoke a child to legitimately avoidable anger? A selfish parent, a absent parent, a harsh parent, a cowardly father, a lazy father, an overindulgent father, an overprotective father. Now, what we'll do, and there's many different ways in which we could slice this, and again, what we're doing here this morning is having more of a focus on just application and applied wisdom. And so, there are three don'ts among many that I want to capture here this morning regarding this instruction. Don't overpromise to your children, don't overprotect your children, and don't overindulge your child. Don't overpromise. Uh, you may hear the phrase, and at times it may even come through our minds, or certainly people in the world say to children, you can do anything you want to do. You can be anything. And what they're trying to do, and it may be coming from a nice heart of wanting to encourage the child, but it may also even be coming from a standpoint of I need to build up their esteem. I need to make them love themselves more. 
And one of the things that we should understand clearly from Scripture is that all human beings, and let me put it this way, no human beings have the problem of not loving themselves enough or esteeming themselves enough. When we look at God's counsel on the state of humanity, our problem is we esteem ourselves too much. We love ourselves too much. And trying to build your child's self-esteem is like taking gasoline and pouring it on an already blazing runaway fire. Now, having said this, we do want to set the goals high. We understand that even God's standard for us as his child, as his son, or as his daughter. What does he tell us in Leviticus? What does he tell us in 1 Peter? Be holy even as I am holy. So we always want to maintain the high standards that God has. And whatever standards we may have in terms of applying the wisdom to our children, we want to set the standards high. And at the same time, we want to keep the pressure low. We want to leave room and flexibility for failure and attempt, recognizing that your child is frail and is fallen. So don't overpromise to your child. Don't overprotect your child. Now, to be sure, when the child is young, we understand that that is part of our responsibility as fathers, part of our responsibility as parents is to protect our children. At the same time, we understand that that can vary and should vary even with age. As they grow and as they mature, there can and should be an increase in freedom and responsibility with the idea that they would grow up and mature and be able to make the right decisions. We want them to be wise and discerning when confronted with evil. And the danger, the careful here, again, this is in the context of restraint, of not overprotecting our children, is if they're completely isolated, an isolationist approach, an over-isolationist approach can produce children who are gullible, vulnerable, and defenseless. And you've probably seen this many times. I've seen it many times when there are children where their parents we're perhaps protecting them even to a point of overprotection. And when they are released, maybe it's college, maybe it's something else. In the first occasion where they are free to go out of the nest, so to speak, and to sprout their own wings, there's a massive crash and burn because they were perhaps overprotected and not girded and guarded and built up to deal with what is out there. And I was even think of this in the current environment, in the current environment of massive widespread fear. There's a dynamic that's absolutely devastating to our children. I was even thinking in the context of our children here, and there's some data that I actually saw that really spoke towards this. And these are data that come out of the CDC. Now, all the data that comes from CDC should be viewed with suspicion. But when the data comes out that goes completely against their narrative, I think it's maybe a little more reliable. And what I saw recently released was in 2019, the obesity rate in children ages 5 to 11 was 36%. The obesity rate in, again, children 5 to 11 in 2020 was 45%. It increased almost 30% in one year by virtue of the lockdown and fear that came in and brought this. And then even on top of this, some of the same experts that were mandating the lockdown and some of the other dynamics as well are now saying that children are at a far greater risk this coming fall and winter to become very sick because their immune systems were dormant and unexercised for 18 months during the lockdown. Therefore, they might become much more sick. Now, Beloved, again, I'm just using current example and current data to remind us that as parents who, are, who have our children be in the world, but not of the world, we need, by God's grace and mercy, Solomon's wisdom and the instruction manual that God gives us in the Bible, how we are to care for and protect and, Lord willing, not overprotect our children. So, don't overpromise to your children. Don't overprotect your children. Don't overindulge your children. Don't pour gasoline on your child's already burning fire of depravity by showing him the cruelty of giving him everything he wants. In fact, I would say one of the greatest deprivations of freedom and flexibility and an atmosphere in which your child can flourish is to give them a choice before they are ready. 
So again, there's a balance here. We are to protect, we are to guard, we are to restrict, and then we are to prayerfully before the Lord seek to loosen that as we seek to be used by God to help our son or our daughter grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and in this world. Uh, Another don't, don't have expectation without investment. And this gets even in terms of the one element I mentioned before, one way in which a parent can provoke their child to anger is by being absent. Now, as Paul directs this to fathers, I understand work is hard. It takes time. I mean, you come home at the end of the day and you've been battling dragons all day long and now you have to fight little monsters and (laughs) give yourself to them. (laughs) Like, I I get it. I understand that. But we can't opt out. And we can't have high expectations, even if we are setting the right kind of goals and bars that God would set, and then have no investment on our side. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes love. It takes concern. It's like the man who's complaining because he looks at his field and there's no harvest. And you ask him and say, well, I look at your field, did you plant? No. Did you sow? No. Did you cultivate? No. This guy's crazy. Why, why, would you, why are you surprised when there's no harvest when you didn't plant or sow or cultivate? And in the same way, fathers, you've got to plant the imperishable seed of the Word of God in your children on a regular basis. When you go by the way, when you go on the side all the time, like we read in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9 before, all the time, use life as a classroom opportunity to bring the doctrines of God, including the doctrines of grace and all the creeds and the teaching and the instruction that God gives us in the Bible to bear in your relationship with your child. Let them see you sacrifice, let them see you worship, let in your ministry in the workplace, your ministry in church, your ministry in home, your relationships in the neighborhood, let them see by God's grace and mercy excellence in your whole being. And don't expect more or less than what they're capable of delivering. Did you get that? And again, that's, I mean, who, who can hit that razor edge perfectly? No one can, but that's what we aim at. Don't expect more or less than what they are capable of delivering. And when they fail to deliver on what they're capable of delivering, encourage them, come alongside, and seek to bless them. So, beloved, the first blessing of biblical fatherhood is restraint. That's the don't. The Apostle Paul now moves to the do's, and we move to the second blessing of biblical fatherhood, which is nourishment. This is the tender care. This is the loving shepherding of your child's heart. He says, but, look at the text, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Nurture them, prepare them, literally feed them with that in end. Or as Karish, or excuse me, as Calvin said, fondly cherish your children is how he translated that. And there are many different dimensions of this as well. One slice of this is this means, fathers, that you recognize that your children are individuals. Each of them have a unique temperament, a unique personality. And part of the skill in biblical parenthood is distinguishing between your children. Is she timid or is she confident? Is she reserved or outgoing? Is she fearful or is she carefree? Suspicious or trusting? Is she by nature aggressive or considerate? Is she amiable or is she argumentative? Now, the idea is that we understand God gives us black and white truth in Scripture in terms of what we are to do as fathers, what we are to do as mothers. But the way in which that will look for each individual child may and should vary dependent upon the unique, wonderful creation of God that she or he is. And it depends on age, as I indicated before. It may even depend on parent, one parent. So the father is to have the leading responsibility in raising children, not the only responsibility, but the leading responsibility. But what it looks like for individual children in terms of allocation of responsibilities or maybe wisdom in terms of how that looks. Beloved, Also, pray for your children. 
And this, I was thinking about that, and I could have put that anywhere in this sermon. Pray for your children. Bathe them in prayer. Be like Job in chapter 1, verse 5, where every day Job would rise up early in the morning and offer up burnt sacrifice on behalf of his children towards God. Fathers, wake up early in the morning. I don't really care when. That's a great way to start the day. But on a daily basis, offer up the burnt sacrifice of prayer before God, to God, on behalf of your children. And that is not a sprint. That is not a 10K that ends when they're 18 or when they come to Christ. That is your lifelong ultramarathon pursuit. Pray for your children. Prize your children, men. This is another aspect and outflowing of nourishing your children, of this nourishment. You remember husbands from Ephesians 5 that the more you love your wife, the lovelier she becomes. The more you value your wife, the more valuable she will become. In the same way, men, fathers, mothers as well, but address the fathers, the more you prize your child, the more prize-worthy he or she will become. Prize their smiles. Prize their ideas. Prize their achievements. Prize their uniqueness. They'll sense this. They will sense this in the same way that children have a built-in hypocrisy meter in the same way children have a built-in prizematic meter. And they will sense that you prize them in these different areas. And when you do that, all your other ways of showing love to them and shepherding them will gain power and energy. It's like uh, that, that uh, cook guy, I forgot, Emerald. Emerald, you know, bang, he throws the seasoning in. That's, like, that's what it does when you prize your children. That's like a bang. It just accelerates and intensifies the other aspects of your ministry to your children. Part of the nourishment is part of good parenting is recognizing that it comes from relationships. And what's the first priority relationship? Of course, your relationship with God. What's the second priority relationship? Your relationship with your wife, men, with your husband, women, and, of course, your relationship with your child and provide an atmosphere and love and confidence. It's interesting, even in the same kind of flow, as I mentioned before, of citing a non-Christian source, uh, Harvard. Harvard in the 21st century and the 20th century was anything but a bastion of Christian thinking. Uh, back a couple hundred years ago, it had some very good theologians, for example, a gentleman named Jonathan Edwards. But in 1994, long past the day when Harvard would be thought of as a repository of anything Christian, they did a study. The title of the study, the Harvard study, was Urban Poverty and the Family Context of Delinquency. And it's actually fascinating. I'm not sure if they would publish the same results now, 27 years later than they did back then, because it goes, again, against their narrative. But they noticed that what describes and what induces delinquency in children is parental deviance, parental instability, erratic, harsh discipline. What are two necessary ingredients, kind of to sum up this whole study that they put out, two necessary ingredients for a child to not become delinquent is, number one, fair and consistent discipline of the father and the mother's supervision. And then they even wrapped it up by saying demonstrable affection between a mother and father is one more essential ingredient to help a child not become a delinquent. On the Christian side, uh, Charles Shedd, he was a Presbyterian pastor in the 20th century, uh, 50 years in the same church. And this is what Charles Shedd said. He said, a father's first responsibility to his child at the human level is to love his wife. The most favored children in the world are those whose parents love each other, end quote. So beloved, the single most important foundation for successful parenting is a healthy Christ-centered marriage, period. No, qual no equivocation on that. Having said that, let me give a word to you. If you are here this morning and you fall outside of that domain, you may fall outside of that because of the frown of providence, maybe the frown of providence of cancer or uh, West Nile virus or something else. Maybe it's even a result of sin, maybe not your sin. 
Maybe you have an unrepentant, serial, adultering husband or a wife that deserted you or something else. Understand this. By holding God's high standard and never shying away from God's high standard of what's right and appropriate, that does not mean hopelessness for a child of God that finds himself or herself outside that boundary. There is always hope. Maybe you're even in a situation because of your sin, but you've since repented. There is always hope for the child of God, and God can and does supernaturally fill voids that are created, again, either by perhaps the frown of providence or even by sin. Well, two elements of this nourishment. So we see the blessing of restraint, the blessing of nourishment. Right here in the text, there are two elements of this biblical fatherhood blessing of nourishment, namely discipline and instruction. It's Interesting, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a choice quote that I will give you here in a second. And basically what he is doing here is he wrote this somewhere between like 1966-1967. And he was lamenting the effect on Western society of the lack of discipline. And he even kind of alluded it, or he gave an illustration of the actual fall of Rome. And this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, why did the Goths and the Vandals and other barbarians conquer the ancient Roman Empire? Was it by superior military power? Of course not. Historians know that there's only one answer. The fall of Rome came because of the spirit of indulgence that had invaded the Roman world. The games, the pleasures, the baths, the moral rot that had entered into the heart of the Roman Empire was the cause of Rome's decline and fall. Uh, pause there, it's interesting. Shakespeare, I think I mentioned this a month or so ago, Shakespeare also came to the conclusion, the right conclusion, that it was moral rot that led to the fall of Rome. But let me continue with the good doctor. Lloyd-Jones continues, it was not superior power from the outside, but internal rot that was Rome's ruin. And the really alarming fact today is that we are witnessing a similar declension in this in most other Western countries. He said this almost 50 years ago. This slackness, this indiscipline, the whole outlook and spirit is characteristic of a period of decadence. The pleasure mania, the sports mania, the drink and drug mania have gripped the masses. This is the essential problem, the sheer absence of discipline, end quote. Beloved, that is the consequence of the absence of discipline. That's why the Apostle Paul says, bring up your children in the discipline of the Lord, literally in the child training of the Lord, with a view, with a heart to be used by God to fix what is broken, to be used by God to straighten what is crooked, with a desire that your child, that your beloved son, your beloved daughter will be able to stand firm against the tides of a culture that is corrupted and is corrupting. Solomon said in Proverbs 22, verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's the problem that every man and woman, every young man and woman, every boy and girl are born dead in their trespasses and sin. But Solomon continues. He says at the end of that verse, the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Now, when Solomon talks about the rod in Proverbs, to be sure he talks about a physical rod or, or a, a whacker or a belt. Um, I remember one time when I was we're, we're on the East Coast, I was uh, taking my belt off, and Zachary was a little guy. He goes, Daddy, he goes, why are you taking your belt off? <laughs> like, I don't know, son. You tell me one. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just changing clothes. You're nothing here at this point. So do, back on task. To be sure, Solomon is talking about the physical rod, but there's a broader context as well. I mean, you use corporal discipline with your child, but certainly by the age of 13, when they become a young man or woman, you go away from that. And the rod includes that, but expands beyond that. And we understand, men, that you need to administer the rod, the corporal rod, or the figurative rod sparingly, purposefully, respectfully, lovingly, prayerfully. Uh, another dimension that we need to bring to bear is, and this goes back to the context of understanding our children are unique and assessing the situation appropriately according to what's there, not how good our day went, is we need to distinguish between childish irresponsibility and willful disobedience. 
Now, to be sure, childish irresponsibility does need to be shepherded. And maybe even at times there may be some punishment with that. But as good stewards of the beautiful gifts of our children that God has given us, we need to distinguish between those two. I mentioned last week that when it comes, certainly when it comes to the application of the physical rod, that one way in which we can understand kind of a grouping is, at least in our house, we discipline for disobedience, dishonesty, and disrespect. And men, whenever you discipline, always remind your child that you're doing this. You don't like to do this. It takes time and energy. You pray with them. But the undergirding fabric behind that discipline is because you love them because you love the Lord the Lord loves you the Lord disciplines you and the Lord instructs you to discipline them generally speaking just in terms of applied wisdom as much as possible do it privately not publicly there's one element of that in our increasingly litigious and increasingly hostile secular society. There's just good wisdom to not needlessly expose ourselves to something we don't need to. But even more importantly, do it out of respect and love for the child. That's just part of even the application of biblical communications that God gives all believers to one another applied to our children as well. It was interesting after one of my sermons when I was in the husband and wife series, I received an excellent question for a wonderful godly young lady here at the church. And she, her question was basically, she understood from the sermon, more importantly, she understood from the word of God, that in the Bible, God tells the wives to submit to the husband. But she also rightfully understood that nowhere in scripture does it ever does God ever command the husbands to make your wives or encourage your wives or be overly concerned about your wives' submission to you? And her excellent question was, is it a similar dynamic with the children? And this was before we got into uh, verses 1 through 4 in chapter 6. She said, I understand children are commanded to obey. Is there some element or not an element of the parents making their children obey? And again, it was a brilliant question. And the answer was, yes, uh, there is. That as a parent, as a father who desires to shepherd his son or his mother, you teach and enforce obedience in your shepherding the heart of your child. And in fact, you continually teach obedience all your life. Obviously, when your child is 14, it's a different form than when your child was one or two. When your child is 25, it's very different. You're not really enforcing obedience there. But you can still be teaching obedience by your walk with the Lord. Again, it's not a sprint. It's not a 10K. It's an ultra marathon. The goal is to shepherd the heart so that over time, the maturity and the responsibility grows. And even at the younger ages, the enforced obedience lessens as they more and more own the instruction and the truth on their own. And beloved, the controlled, appropriate, and consistent discipline based on clear rules and principles will create an atmosphere for your child in which there is freedom, in which they can flourish. And they know the limits and they feel secure and free to dream and move and play and even fail at times within these limits. It's interesting, I'm going to touch on one thing that uh, just when I think of discipline, it, it is on my heart here. I remember I came across this dynamic and this thinking, actually, when I was in Southern California many, many years ago. And there was a missionary that I remember, he made a statement that I'd never even thought of that concept before. He, I don't know what it was in the discussion that led to that point, but he said, well, Sometime when, there, when I know there was some kind of sin or offense among my many children, but I don't know which one did it, I just spank all of them. And you know what? I mean, I figured the ones that didn't do it, I mean, they probably deserved a spanking anyway. And I was like, I, I'm not sure about that. I, act, I came across it again here in Arizona some years later. Uh, some Scott and some other men and I were meeting with another group of elders from another church. And the, the, one of the pastors of the church basically made the same statement there. And it's like, I, I don't get this, and as I think about it, this seems to fly directly in the face of God's discipline to us as our children. Now, to be sure, we understand in the context of the general providence of God, we live in a sin-cursed world. Uh, cancer, uh, 
West Nile virus, car crash, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There are many things. But we as fathers are not called to model the general providential dimension of God's curse on creation. Rather, we are to model him as the father who deals with his child. And in Ezekiel 18, verse 20, this is what God says to the prophet Ezekiel. The person who sins will die. Nothing new in that. We saw that back in Genesis 2, verse 14. The person who sins will die. But watch this. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So when we look at the way, when we look at what God tells us in Scripture, we are punished, the direct punish, not the providential curse dimension. We are punished directly by God for our sin and not for the sins of others. Therefore, hence, ergo, I don't buy that whole dimension of just disciplining everybody. And there's an unnamed Christian school here in Arizona that I dearly love that I remember they used to have a practice where there would be a sin or an offense of like one or two, and then they just restrict the freedoms of everybody because of it. Uh, so anyway, back on task. But as I said before, this is kind of a deep down kind of applied wisdom element of the sermon. Back on discipline, finish it up. Hebrews 12, 11. Remember, Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, talks fundamentally about God's discipline of you and of me as his child. And that is the foundation of your discipline as a father of your child. And the way the author of Hebrews finishes that great discourse in verse 11, he says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Again, the immediate context is God's discipline of you or me. The same principle applies to the discipline that you fathers lovingly bring to bear on your children. So restraint, nourishment, discipline. The second part of the couplet of the two elements of the nourishment are discipline and instruction. And it's always a both and. It's always both. There's always an element of both discipline and instruction. But even this also, there's kind of a shift that goes with age. And I'll give you an example, a personal example of kind of a combination of discipline and instruction. Uh, so when, and I'm actually citing him twice here, I got his permission, at least on one of these, but when Zach was about 10 or 11 years old and he was at a Christian school on the East Coast, and there was a guy in his grade that was trying to bully Zach, and he was, you know, bullying, you know, bullying him, and Zach was, you know, taking it to a certain level. Then it finally got to the point where the classmate of Zach made a really foul, derogatory insult against Margie. And so Zach used his Brazilian jiu-jitsu training and took him down <laughs> and held him down. And because Zach was the one that initiated the physical altercation, you know, they were both recalled in the principal's office, and I went in, and the principal, he's a reasonable guy, but he's like, yeah, you know, look, here's what Zach did. And I said, okay, you know, I'll take him, I'll discipline him appropriately. So I took him and bought him ice cream. Now, again, <laughs> this is a wisdom issue. So there's discipline and instruction. And I won't go too far off on this if you want more of my <laughs> thinking on this, but the Bible does not teach pacifism. And it is more important to me, it was more important to me, the Bible does teach that men protect women. The Bible teaches that a child should honor the mother and father. And the instruction Zachary had from that, to me, that was overwhelming, that was more dominant, that was more important to me. And the good thing was it was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, so it was very controllable. He didn't have to take his head off with a striking type of fighting, but I'm digressing too much. Instruction. Beloved, evolution says that your child is a product of time, space, matter, and chance. Granville Stanley Hall, who was the father of the myth of adolescence, says your son is a turbocharged monkey. That basically, you remember if you are here last week, that the whole idea of adolescence is that the development of the child, in Hall's perspective, follows after the made-up 
evolutionary development. But beloved, that is not true. Your son, your daughter is not a product of space, time, matter, and chance. Your son, your daughter was created by a loving creator, knit together in his or her mother's womb. Therefore, your child needs something more than merely blind submission. Your child needs loving instruction. You need to answer her questions. Who am I? Where am I going? And does it really matter? You need to go to the instruction manual that God has given you to help her understand these answers. Your goal is to get her or him to become owner of the beliefs, the practices, the discipline. Your desire is that she would believe the truths joyfully, adopt the practices willfully, and own the disciplines completely. He says, Bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. The total moral and spiritual shalom and well-being of your child. And men, fathers, this ministry, this shepherding, this nuthesia, placing what's right into the mind, means you don't just say, well, take three verses in the morning and call me in the morning. Or say, take three verses and call me in the morning. No, it takes time. It takes effort. It takes patient, continuous teaching, instructing, practicing, and modeling. This instruction needs to be instruction that you yourself have digested and has become a ruling principle in your life. Not a perfect application of the perfect principles. The principles are perfect. That's not saying the application, your obedience needs to be perfect, but it needs to be a demonstrable ruling practice in your life to galvanize and to energize the instruction that you give to your child. Then I mentioned this last week, but again, it's so powerful. I'll do it again here. Ezra 7.10. Ezra has set his heart to study the law of God, to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinance in all of Israel. That's the standard. And it's the same way as what we read even earlier in Deuteronomy 6 verses 1 through 9, where God instructs the fathers to train your children in this way, to take the law of God, take the truth that there is one God. God is there and God is one. And to bind it on your hand, bind it on your forehead. In other words, your hand is everything you do. Your forehead is everything that you think. And to do it by the wayside and the roadway and here and there and the doorpost. And when you sit down, when you rise, do it all the time. Again, use life as a classroom. And as I mentioned last week, I didn't mention this week, but one of the surefire ways to provoke a child to anger is with the sin of hypocrisy. And you can teach your child truth four hours a day, but if your character and example don't line up, all your instruction will rot. William Quayle, he was a late 19th century, early 20th century Methodist pastor, back when there were saved Methodists. I'm sorry, they're still, they're still saved Methodists this day. Maybe not, anyway. William Quayle said this. He said, I would rather have been the son of a woman and a man who in their poverty couldn't leave me anything but the Bible, rather than to have been descended from all the majesties of history. Beloved, the greatest gift you can give your children is faith in the promise of God. And your children learn to minister even to one another by how you minister to them. B.B. Warfield was a professor of theology at Colgate, Princeton, sorry, from a Princeton ceremony. (laughs) Let's uh, rewind the tape on that tape on that one. B.B. Warfield was president of Princeton Seminary. From 1887 to 1921, he was the last of the great Princeton theologians before the split between liberalism and a consistent understanding of Scripture in 1929. And he tells a wonderful story in an article titled, Is the Shorter Catechism Worthwhile? And what Warfield was doing in particular was defending the shorter catechism, which is a good, noble help to parents. But I'm saying it here to apply it to the broader level of taking the truth of God and ministering to your children with it. But this is what Warfield wrote. He said, we have the following bit of personal experience from a general officer in the United States Army. So this is not long after World War I. He was in a great western city at a time of intense excitement and violent rioting. 
The streets were overrun daily by a dangerous crowd. One day he observed approaching him a man of singularly combined calmness and firmness of bearing, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was the man with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he had passed, he turned to look back at him, only to find that the stranger had done the same. In observing the turning, the stranger at once came back to him and touched his chest with his finger and demanded without preface, what is the chief end of man? On receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The stranger said, aha, I thought you were a shorter catechism boy. Why, that was just what I was thinking of you, came the man's reply. Beloved, the point here is that, again, we are most concerned about the inside, but by God's grace and mercy, the work of Christ, the imperishable seed which springs and gives life will be working out on the outside. It will be noticeable. It will glorify God and bless others. So restraint, nourishment, discipline, instruction. The fifth and final blessing from verse 4 at the end is your motivation. Our final goal, our ultimate motivation, I said it before, is our child's salvation. As Paul says in Ephesians, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The discipline and instruction of the Christian father is framed by the transforming power of the gospel. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Verse 4, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Help them to be satisfied in God by teaching them and modeling them to hope in God. Be clear and thorough. Be faithful, patient, persistent, careful, looking at each moment, whether you're saying grace and offering thanks before a meal or doing a Bible study afterwards or out on the golf course or on the basketball court or taking them to school, use the opportunities to train and shepherd the heart of your child. Be fervent to lead your child, to be used by God, to lead them to trust in Christ alone by faith alone. And recognize that part of your responsibility is to guard him or her from thinking he's saved when he might not be. That's not to say that you tell them that they're not saved or tell them that they are saved. You describe their behavior. You tell them what biblical Christianity looks like, what biblical fruit, what the harvest of a soil that's been prepared by the penetrated seed of the imperishable seed of the word of God what that kind of fruit will look like you instruct him in that you do not usurp the role of the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit give the assurance and like Apostle Paul did to his spiritual children in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13 you at times tell your son or your daughter test yourself examine yourself to make sure you are in the faith you encourage signs of salvation And in all these things, you use these as an opportunity to teach more about Christ and his gospel. And Father, your goal as a father is to live in such a way that your child will see what God the Father is like, to see a reflection of the heavenly Father in you. Who can do this thing? No one can do this thing except for the grace and mercy of God. Have your son or daughter come stumbling in at 4.30 a.m. and catch you in your quiet time of Bible study and prayer and curl up next to you in their blanket. Augustus Strong, this was a confusion I had before. Augustus Strong was president of Colgate Rochester Theological Seminary. Also at the end of the 19th century, he wrote a systematic theology that's still in In his autobiography, Strong talked about the influence, in this case of his mother, but we'll take this and apply it to the fathers and mothers as well. Strong wrote these words. He said, one of the earliest things I remember is my mother taking me into a dimly lighted closet every Saturday afternoon after the day's work was done and kneeling with me beside a chest while she taught me how to pray. I remember her suggesting to me the thoughts, and when I couldn't command the words, she put into my mouth the very words of prayer. And I'll never forget how one day, as I'd succeeded at uttering some poor words of my own, I was surprised by drops 
falling upon my face. They were my mother's tears. My mother's teaching me how to pray has given me ever since my best illustration of the Holy Spirit's influence in prayer. When we know not what to pray for as we ought, he, with far more than a mother's skill and sympathy, helps our infirmities and makes intercession with us while Christ makes intercession for us before the throne. Father, in conclusion, you can begin your work too late. You can never begin your work too early. Every vice begins in the nursery. You bring home a lovely little girl. You bring home a beautiful little boy. But that lovely little girl is a rebel. That beautiful little boy is a rebel in need of a heart transformation. Fathers, bend the tender twig before the branch is four feet wide. Let every decision, every discipline be governed, dictated by the grand vision of what your son or daughter may become. That he may become like David's men, a mighty man of the Lord. That she may become like the mighty women of Scripture, Abigail, Lydia, the Syrophoenician woman, Mary. This is our goal. This is what God can and does and will equip us to do for his glory, for our joy, and for our children's blessing. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for your creation. We thank you for the beautiful institution of marriage. We thank you for the family. We thank you for godly mothers, for godly fathers. We thank you for the blessing of children. Thank you, Lord, that there are children that are being born, new creatures made in your image in our midst almost as we speak. Lord God, help us to be obedient and to glorify you and to bathe our children in prayer and to live the practices in our lives and to model the instruction that we give to our children for their blessing, for their joy, for their eternal salvation. And Lord Jesus, we are reminded, even as we now approach a communion table, and even as the beautiful songs we sang at the beginning, all of this points towards you. You are all in all. You are the focus of all things, and you are the one who is the author and perfecter of faith in the old and even in the young. And it is for your glory and honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we approach the communion table. Amen.